The key with impact investing is that you do not need to sacrifice returns. If you care at all about making a difference, then impact investing is for you. I think a lot of what has contributed to the growth of impact investing has been that a lot of financial planners are responding to questions from their clients that they can't answer. Welcome to the Beyond Capital Podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. Together, we have built and invested in businesses worth millions. We want to show you how social impact can exist in a company's operations, product, and culture, sometimes unexpectedly. We hope you walk away knowing the possibilities of social impact for you and feeling inspired by the potential to do good. This is the Beyond Capital Podcast. And today we have a very special episode, Getting Started with Impact Investing. And Eve and I are going to take you through, together with our producer, who we're so glad to have on the show today, Mathilde Beneflaw. Hi, Mathilde. Hi, great to be here. Okay, well, all of us are going to help you unpack what impact investing really is, talk about how you can get started, and dive into how impact investing has been affected during the COVID pandemic. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Hi, Ed. Hi, Mathilde. How are you all doing today? Excellent. Doing well. And and I think, you know, this is the right moment to have this conversation. Heading into our second season, a lot has changed in the world, and I think a lot more people are asking, what is impact investing? How is it different than traditional models? How can it play a role in their lives? I mean, people say impact investing is a special thing because it's, it has a dual intention. It's making a positive social or environmental impact and making a financial return. Is that what you would say impact investing is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is the intention, as you say, to generate more than just a financial return. I think it it's much more than that in that it is basically just asking more from your money, asking your money to work harder for you. But as we all know, traditional investing only considers risk-adjusted financial returns and nothing more. I think, you know, one of the other distinguishing factors from impact investing is is thinking about how environmental social and governance criteria come into the conversation I think we're we'll, we'll get there in our in our conversation as well but I think a lot of a lot of people also think about impact investing and ESG as one and the same when in fact they're different yeah so ESG is the thing you see when you're looking through a mutual fund or you know you hear it all the time ESG 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 environmental, social, and governance investing. How is that different, Mathilde, from impact investing? Yeah, so I think you can think of ESG in simple terms as just being essentially the absence of evil. It's about negatives. It's about screening out based on risk. So financial return is still the primary objective, but you are at least taking some other factors into consideration in your decision-making process. Impact investing, on the other hand, is really more about creating value and trying to push for a solution. And you know, one thing that I think is really important is that while impact investing and ESG is becoming somewhat of a hot topic at the moment, seems like a new trend, impact investing has been around for a very long time. Methodists, Quakers, and a lot of people of faith back in the 19th century would 
tell their uh, churchgoers not to invest in anything that they deem to be detrimental to humanity, like tobacco, alcohol, gambling, and things like that. So we've actually seen forms of responsible investing a lot throughout history, but it is becoming more and more salient, especially in this current market. So if we're talking about ESG being the absence of negatives, like what's an example of that? Just like, oh, I'm not going to invest in anything that's fossil fuels or something like that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly an example. Um, the, the way that ESG is reported is often companies are self-reporting. And so they're typically sharing, you know, perhaps depending on the fund that they're hoping to be listed within for investors to buy their shares, they're typically sharing different levels of how the company is acting with regard to the environment, with regard to their employees, with regard to diversity within the company's management, perhaps the whole employee base and the board as well. And they're also disclosing governance, which of course relates to the board and its composition, but also perhaps, you know, ratios of executive pay. Just thinking a lot about our conversation with Dan Price last season about, you know, executive pay and how it relates to employee pay is definitely one example of that. And so when they're self-reporting, it means that the information can be varied. But when we look at ESG funds, we have some of them that, you know, I've invested in are the Aspiration Redwood Fund, the Dominee Impact uh, International Equity Fund, which is more international, the PAX, MSCI, IFA, ESG Leaders Index. All of these funds have their own specific criteria for why a company would be included. And so they pull the ESG data that companies are, are reporting on their own and then decide whether to include companies. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. Exclusion of fossil fuels is, is probably, you know, the most basic example, but it could also go, you know, as far as to include all three factors, like environmental, social factors, as well as governance into one set of criteria that a fund is requesting. And, you know, Ed, if there is one takeaway that I would want our listeners uh, to have from this first question is really that the key with impact investing is that you do not need to sacrifice returns. I think it can be treated that way as being a a concessionary option or more philanthropic, and we'll get more into that later in the conversation. But you can absolutely have standard financial returns when you are thinking a little bit more deeply about the social impact as well. It's not a sacrifice. Yeah, I found that to be true with my portfolio. And uh, maybe we should switch into here what are some of the options for getting started? I mean, I think when when getting started, the investor needs to look at her portfolio and decide, you know, what she might be able to access. So for example, if it's smaller investment sizes, you're probably looking at the public markets, which means you're probably looking at ESG funds because ESG really dominates the public markets. The reality is, is that it is harder to find deeper impact investing opportunities for smaller investors that might have, you know, under $10,000 to invest. That being said, as I mentioned, there are a couple funds out there that I think are more active in their approach rather than just being, you know, passive and kind of screening out do no harm and, and really leaving it at that. There are also some apps like Robinhood that you can easily use to invest directly into companies that align with your values or are working to address a societal issue. And so I think what's important is accessibility when getting started and, and understanding what is 
accessible to you as an investor? You know, Ed, my brothers love Robinhood. I talk about this all the time. They've been investing directly into companies, kind of a hobby for them. And, you know, knowing that I'm in the impact investing space, they often ask me for, you know, socially responsible companies that they can invest in. So if there's a company out there that you feel really strongly about or are really excited about, that's a great way to invest as little as $5. And you're just putting a small amount into a company that you believe in. That absolutely counts as an impact investment. And so Aspiration, that's another one. They've got the Redwood Fund. That's kind of like an online bank that has some investing options. So those are like the small starting points where, you know, five bucks, 25 bucks is the starting point. Uh, What's the next step up? from there. The next step would be perhaps some funds that have lower minimums. One of them that we both know Ed, is Greenbacker, which is an income generating renewable energy efficiency and sustainable development project investment fund. So they invest in, for example, wind energy projects and they pay a dividend back to their investors and their their minimum is at I believe twenty five thousand um, dollars, which you know requires an accredited investor to be an investor. But I think it still makes it accessible and provides liquidity, which is what is often needed by smaller sized investors as well. And I think you know just in general, the impact investing I believe opens up the conversation around money for people who perhaps don't have you know a quarter of a million dollars per investment or, you know, are extremely wealthy or ultra high net worth in, in, in parts of banks where they can really have bespoke solutions. And one of those areas that is kind of under noticed is being able to put your money into a bank, which is lending in your local community and using your capital in a way that where it's, you know, in a savings account in a way that is more consistent with your values. I never really thought about that, but it's pretty interesting because, you know, the bank takes your money and then they're lending it out to other people. And so if they're a purpose-driven bank and they're lending it out for good purposes, then it's kind of like, even just by putting your money in a savings account, you can be doing some good. Absolutely. And there are a number of B corporation banks or black owned banks as well. A couple of the the banks that we've noted are Beneficial State Bank, Carver Federal Savings, there are CDFIs, Community Development Finance Institutions all around the US. There are also credit unions in, in Europe for anybody listening outside of the US as well that, you know, make it I think, more consistent with one's value. If you care about lending to smaller businesses or even minority and people of color or women, because the reality is the large banks often are lending to large companies. And one other test that I like to do is check that your bank isn't on the banking climate report, which is unfortunately a a long list of all of the banks that we would probably guess. So every major bank really being on this list, but it shows that they are financing not only fossil fuels, but the kind of dirtiest uh, industries within the fossil fuel industry. So they're not even thinking about kind of like transition to energy future. And some banks are making strides uh, to, to their credit. JP Morgan, which is the The worst offender on this list has aligned their strategy with the Paris agreements. I believe UBS is also on the list, but they have decided to share sustainability as a default in their private bank with all of their clients recently. And so banks are kind of making changes as we speak, literally. But I think it's important to just understand what I would call, you know, where your money sleeps at night. I'm getting active. I want to do some more impact investing. And this might come in conflict with 
my charitable budget? Or at least how is it the same or different from giving money to charities? And I think it'd be interesting to to just kind of dive into that for a second, because to me, impact investing is really for everybody who thinks about charity. In some cases, charity is very, you know, it's just simply pain relief. It's just like helping somebody who's really, really hurting. And that's a human compassion component of charity. And um, that's always going to be there. It's always going to be needed. But when we start to move into charities that start to feel like they're perpetuating a problem, you know, maybe by not providing the right incentives for people to pick themselves up by their own bootstraps or keeping sort of services rather than tough love too easy. Let's dive into that. What do you think? I think one thing that's important to note is that philanthropy and impact investing are definitely different, but not necessarily mutually exclusive. So if you were to create a Venn diagram of you know social good, there would be some overlap. But you can think of philanthropy as having like a minus 100% financial return. You're just not getting any of your capital back versus impact investing, which, as we said, can be you know, competitively financial, financially returns. It's helpful to incorporate that into thinking about where your budget is for philanthropy versus investing. And another metric I would use to, to kind of bring this into contrast is when we talk about impact investing, it's a huge opportunity. Americans gave roughly $450 billion in charitable donations last year. But if you think about the total value of the U.S. stock exchange at $35 trillion, philanthropy is really kind of dwarfed by the enormous potential in the investment world. So I think when we think about activating more capital for good, it's important to remember how massive the potential is for impact investing. I do think that philanthropy has a time and a place. I think what you're describing, Ed, is a frustration that many people feel. You know, there are some causes where it's not obvious that philanthropy is the solution. It sounds like you had something specific in mind. Is that right? Well, I was just thinking about homelessness. You know, it was sort of the, you know, the, the one area where some people feel like if they give money or they help somebody, they might just, you know, not give them the incentive to get back, get back on their own two feet. The impact investing with the promise of having financial returns seems to deal more with, uh, it must be doing something sustainable in order to be able to do that. It has to be providing some real value that it can tap into. I think it's absolutely valid to ask the question, are you making the problem worse through philanthropy? Partially because charities are asked to have extremely lean budgets and not operate like business. And there's a great book called Charity Case, written by a gentleman named Dan Pallotta, who also has a great TED Talk on the topic. And I think the, I would call it kind of lack or scarcity mindset around how charities are run also make sometimes philanthropy not a perfect solution. Now, we know for disaster relief and other, you know, kind of emergency needs that philanthropy is a great tool. But as you point out, criticism really includes dependency, not creating programs that can eventually exist on their own. I think, you know, homelessness definitely stands out as a problem and a challenge in, in the American context and, and in the world at large. But thinking, you know, about cities that, you know, we all live in and, and have been to recently, Dallas, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, and many more, this is, it is a challenge to kind of figure out what is the sustainable solution for homelessness. And what Matilda and I, through our work at Beyond Capital, have learned a lot about is the existence of a, a social challenge within a larger system. So 
you know, thinking about maybe what are the factors and how can impact investing really help the factors that cause homelessness, including rising house prices, so affordable housing, economic instability, ensuring that, you know, their companies are paying fair wages, which, you know, could be something that somebody decides to invest in or even employee ownership models are investable. Drug use and mental health awareness, you know, building businesses that really help destigmatize mental health as well. Because homelessness is a deeply multidimensional issue, impact investing, I think, can offer new tools and, you know, longer term sustainable solutions in order to help the people who are homeless have more support around them to work their way out of their situation. So I think that, you know, there's some innovation to be had there, thinking about different ways to help people access finance. We know Kiva really well for microfinance, helping people create bank accounts with low balances. I love that Jeffrey Brown, our first interview on this podcast, had a credit union in his supermarkets where you could have a bank account with a zero balance. So I think there's some innovation, certainly within impact investing. That guy's a rock star. Yeah, he's a he's a hero mm-hmm. in many ways, but and he sets oh, yeah. the bar high for thinking beyond just what we maybe would think. Okay, we need a bank for people in this neighborhood, but he goes one step farther to really understand what the problem is. And the problem is, is that when you're living paycheck to paycheck, you don't necessarily always have money in your bank. And so you need a place to at least have a place to put your paycheck. So I think that there's a lot of evidence also around pay for success programs where an investor provides capital for an evidence-based program to improve outcomes. So for example, like if a program achieves a reduction in homelessness, the investment is repaid by even like a big funder like the government or a foundation. And there's some preliminary evidence from MIT that that suggests that programs like that can also be effective. So besides the sort of like, I don't know quite how to put it, but let's say the, you know, the tougher philanthropist, the the one who, who really doesn't want to perpetuate the problem, you know, impact investing is an avenue that could satisfy their, you know, their need for progress for solutions. But also another aspect of impact investing that's kind of in a way different or better than philanthropy for a certain population would be people who don't really have a lot of money to give and they really should be saving for their first college tuition or for their um, retirement. And you know, if you really should be saving at a certain part in your career, and that's not when you should be donating a ton of money. And so- Right. So that's another area where impact investing can make a huge difference for somebody when you just don't have the dough. (laughs) Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, when I think about people in my general age group, we're thinking about we have student loans to pay. We are living in extremely expensive cities and we're just getting started in our career. And I think, you know, at the same time, we're very activist and we care about social causes and we want to be involved, especially at a time when you know, there's so much political uncertainty, so much happening in the world that we want to contribute to. And I think philanthropy is appealing, but when you've exhausted your budget to just give out money, <laughs> young people especially could really benefit from using impact investing as just another tool in the toolbox of contributing to solutions. And so in that way, I would say impact investing could actually be thought of as more accessible than philanthropy because you don't need to have massive reserves and savings to be able to contribute to the solution, even though there are barriers to entry for some of the more exciting funds and private investments, impact investing in in the ways we've described before really can be a great way as someone with a more limited philanthropic budget to make a difference. 
Yeah, I mean, I personally want the generation, the millennials and the Gen Zs, I want them to be helping to decide where money goes to solve for social problems. I think it's problematic that we only have billionaires and wealthy individuals making decisions on where capital flows to solve social problems. And so I love the accessibility piece. I love the democratization aspect of what impact investing does, because again, as we've pointed out, you can actually be an impact investor with $50. And you don't have to write thousands of dollars, you know, for a hundred percent loss return in a donation. Okay. So if I want to start and, you know, if I have a financial planner or even if I'm doing my own financial planning, what questions do I start off with? Well, I think the first question that you really need to ask is what do I own already? What might be inconsistent with my values in my portfolio? And that could help you understand what your values are. Sometimes it's actually easier to figure out what you care about by knowing maybe what you don't want to have in your portfolio. But if it's abundantly clear to you that you have a specific cause that you like to support, maybe it's through your philanthropy, maybe it's through what you spend your your extra time on or your skills, it might be easy for you to define your values. But I, I really do believe that that kind of knowing what you own and defining your values is step one. There are many ways to say, don't wait for per- perfection, don't let perfect be the enemy of good, I think is one of them. And also then, you know, the second step would be to find an investment, make an investment and learn from that investment and what you are able to achieve in terms of not only financial return, but social or environmental return as well. And the fact that you are asking questions is probably the most important part. I think a lot of what has contributed to the growth of impact investing has been that a lot of financial planners are responding to questions from their clients that they can't answer. And so they're pushing for new products. They're pushing for more opportunities and options to have portfolios that are sustainable or socially responsible to offer to their clients. So even just signaling that this is something that you care about is actually making a more of a difference than you might realize. Absolutely. I think that there is a pioneering piece here. And I think everybody likes to be a first mover. And this is the time to do that. This is the time to express your interest. You know, going back to values, though, I do think that there are some some other tools, such as the Sustainable Development Goals, which are a guiding framework instead of 17 goals that we can all align not only our money, but our entire lives with. They include gender equality, zero hunger, affordable and uh, renewable energy, climate action, and many more goals that relate to kind of the, the social and environmental progress that we need to see over the next decade in order to kind of keep our world healthy. Let's put it that way. When I looked at the SDGs, and I'm and I'm not a big acronym, acronym guy. I, I actually forbid acronyms <laughs> in all, all the companies that I run. In every company that I run, there's a there's a permitted list of acronyms that you're allowed to use in a meeting or on company business. And some of those would include things like USA. <laughs> there are some that are allowed, but SDGs, like nobody knows what that means. Sustainable development mm-hmm. goals. It's this very comprehensive list of 17 things that would make the world a lot better. I think the UN put it together or something like that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but it's, it's monumentally intimidating. Like when you look at that thing, you're like, oh crap, there's another huge problem. 
there's 17 huge problems. <laughs> we'll never, I'll never get through yeah. all this. You ever feel that way? I deeply relate to that. I mean, as a generalist in my professional life, in my personal life, I just get very overwhelmed. But I also feel like it's unfair to ask me necessarily to narrow down what are your top three issues when there are so many problems to tackle, whether it's it's climate change or gender empowerment. And I and I envy people who are able to have this laser focus. But I don't think that that's a reason to hold you back from impact investing. It's okay to have diverse interests. And lots of areas that we're discussing are very interrelated. You know, we may not realize, but just to use my previous example, gender and climate change are actually very interrelated when you get down into the nitty gritty of what to do. And so I would say that defining your values doesn't have to be as daunting as it sounds. You know, it might be helpful to think about other areas in your life. Like, you know, if you do give philanthropically, what causes do you tend to gravitate towards? Or if you are someone who would consider yourself to be a, a conscious consumer, what products do you typically spend on or spend extra time researching? That could be a clue. But overall, I, I just want to emphasize that defining your values is very much an ongoing exercise that you may want to wait a little bit in your impact investing journey before really digging in. I think starting right out with the acronyms might end up being a little too intimidating and preventing you from action, which is what we're trying to avoid. I mean, I could agree. And and maybe just to give my concrete areas of focus, they have been defined in five areas, diversity and inclusion, the environment, which includes also climate action, education, social justice, and poverty alleviation. Now, these are my personal areas and my, I'm, I'm, I get to run another impact investing organization with a few additions to this. So it definitely gives me a, a, a larger breadth and scope of impact to be able to cover. But as Matilde rightly pointed out, I mean, for example, you know, diversity and gender and poverty and the environment are inextricably linked. And there are, you know, many other areas of intersectionality. So it is doable to integrate these values into a portfolio. Even if I were to, I think simply just selecting five investments could be a good, great starting point if I were, were to be starting from scratch. I guess we should be glad there's only 17. <laughs> I think you're right. There could be 100. I think you're absolutely right. And they each come with a really great little infographic um, that I think is, is intended for accessibility of information. Okay, so before we shift off of of this topic and dive into kind of like impact, Eva, I know you've got a lot going on and with Beyond Capital Fund, you're very active, you know, so I want to know what's going on with impact investing in COVID, like how is it affecting things in India or Africa or even in the US? But before we shift off of that, I thought, you know, what kind of came to my mind as a, a summary of all this that we've been talking about is, you know, besides knowing what you own, the other way to think about it is everywhere your money goes, it's having a, an impact and when you invest it, it also is always having an impact. You want to know what that impact is as much as you can. Absolutely. I mean, this is why I think that impact investing is a mindset and it is not just a practice that you can employ in your stock portfolio. It includes conscious consumerism. It includes going beyond your activism. It includes using your time and your skills. I really do believe that no investment is neutral. And when you exercise that muscle, you start to have more understanding of what impact you want to have in the world world and can really 
you know, bring that forward. And I mean, when thinking about going back to kind of the example of, you know, philanthropy and being a tough philanthropist, I actually see it as just being a systematic, you know, citizen and systematic philanthropist and and applying that thinking to the whole world around you and not just one bucket of your life. So you are absolutely right. And I think this is kind of the most powerful piece of impact investing is that there are so many ways to get involved, but it doesn't always have to be, you know, making an investment it can be conscious consumerism and, and other ways. What's going on in the COVID? Yeah, Corona. I haven't heard it described that way in a while. I think COVID provided an interesting opportunity for impact investing to rise. There's a lot of evidence in the press all over the place stating that impact investing and ESG in particular has really shown in market turmoil. It's not a fad, it has staying power, that the factors that comprise ESG, you know, environmental, workforces, governance are all viewed as risk factors and that they should be incorporated into more traditional investing and and really help to not only boost returns, but manage risk on the downside. So in general, ESG, which is the kind of public market that's most easily measured, performance has been good. As we all know, market performance has, has also been pretty good. But I think to talk a little bit more about nuance, there were a lot of investors waiting on the sidelines before COVID hit because they had tremendous capital gains in their portfolio and they were not willing to trade their investments, perhaps, you know, long-term holdings into impact investments because they would have, you know, extra tax consequences as a result of that. And so when the markets dropped, it also provided a moment for impact investors to take advantage of perhaps, you know, switching into some other positions that were were more consistent with their values. I'll get to, of course, you know, areas where we invest at Beyond Capital, but just overall in the market, institutions are also really paying attention. And as Mathilde said, there's more demand from clients of all ages. For example, banks are are doing things, as I mentioned, as like making sustainability a default option for clients rather than having to have the client actually ask for that. So I think overall, the, the trend is moving in a direction where um, impact investing will stay. It's just a matter of how authentic it is. And that's, you know, that's something I personally am concerned about is is uh, making sure that it is not surface level and that there are deeper la- layers of impact that investors can access. How about you, Mathilde? What do you think about COVID and impact investing? I think when COVID first started and there were the lockdowns began and there was a focus on essential businesses. I think we saw that the way you treat these so-called essential workers really matters. And we've really expanded that definition. I think if you had asked someone in 2019, who are the essential workers of our economy? I think Grubhub and Uber Eats drivers wouldn't necessarily have been at the top of their list. And yet COVID has surfaced the need to protect people who are bringing access to whatever basic good and service people need. So I think my I feel cautiously optimistic that COVID has helped the industry in the sense that people are redefining how important different sectors of the economy are to them and that there's an emphasis on work 
for protection and safety at work. And I think prioritizing the health and well-being of your employees and really seeing the employee as a critical stakeholder of your business is much more part of the corporate conversation than even one year ago. So I hope that the idea of having everyone working from home and not being able to have that much visibility into the well-being of your workforce is giving executives pause and really thinking about how they can support their employees that are making their work possible. I think for sure, in addition to all that, I, I wouldn't disagree with any of it. I, I would say that the, the whole pandemic and all of the life changes, so many people working from home or you know, working in more dangerous situations has really, has really highlighted, I think for a lot of people, what's more important to them. And so from that standpoint, this has been a interesting transformation, more thoughtfulness, maybe, maybe it's the absence makes the heart grow fonder, more focus on how important relationships are, and probably overall more compassion and empathy for other people. As you see people who are ill or affected, it's, it's hard not to, to get that mindset. So that's kind of how I how I would view it. And Ed, you know, as someone who is in the business of encouraging relational wealth, I'm curious what trends you've seen in the workforce now that almost everyone is still remote. Yeah, well, remote working is driving. First, you know, you see all the collaboration adjustments. So it's like Zoom meetings, different kinds of collaboration tools, whiteboarding tools. You know, how do we brainstorm? How do we innovate? How do we manage processes all remotely? And that stuff's all well and good. And those tools are already really good and they're getting even better. The way we know they're already good is how effectively most of us were able to basically get our jobs done. I'm not talking about, you know, service workers or construction workers or or factory workers. I'm talking more about just like office workers, you know, in the office, you know, everyone's been able to get their job done. Many people report even more productively Um, and certainly saving the environmental cost of driving, of commuting, saving the time, you know, fewer roads to build, fewer emissions, less pollution, you know, work for home has actually probably had among the most positive impacts on the environment of anything that's happened in the last probably 25 years. Hopefully it'll stay. And I think it will. We focus on the relational side of that, which is, okay, now that everybody's separated, how do you build relationships among people? And so definitely a big, big emerging market there. You know, people can't quite always put their finger on it. Why am I feeling this way? But then when they do a virtual social or they, you know, they do something that's just for fun, it can bring them to a place that's, that's pretty good. And, you know, you don't have to be next to someone to have a a close relationship. I mean, gosh, Maybe I'm dating myself, but you know, back in the day, we would spend hours on the phone. I would spend hours on the phone call with my girlfriend. You know, we would just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. And you know, that was like awesome. So it's like even if we weren't able to be together, even the telephone or voice is a pretty powerful tool. And then you layer in video and some other things, gaming, you know, other activities you can do. I think people are going to find out that virtual, you know, relationship building over video and other tools is going to be a much, much bigger part of, of the world than what they would expect it to be based on what we're seeing. Some of our listeners are not in the U.S. And what I've also observed is that there's been resilience of conscious leaders who, you know, I would just define as thinking of more than just the financial bottom line, thinking about all, all of those who are involved. And one company that really stands out to me is is Frontier Markets, Ajayta Shah, who we had on the podcast in January of 2020, before the pandemic hit, before things change in her company. And her 
company really got redefined almost as essential. While renewable energy access was critical from the start, she also was able to quickly pivot, use her nimble and resilient skills as an entrepreneur and get products, including even, you know, laundry soap and diapers to her customers. And then, you know, find a way to get tech involved and and big data in order to like really understand what the trends, what our customers want in very rural areas and very rural parts of India so that she could frankly, you know, compete with Amazon, which I think is super exciting to have, you know, the female conscious leader out there really trying to solve for access to basic goods and services and hit her stride during COVID. And that is an example that really stands out to me during this time beyond, you know, the borders of the US and North America, where I think there is also great innovation happening, including at your company, Ed. I was going to say, if there's one message or one takeaway as well in this in this journey on getting started in impact investing, it's that if you care at all about making a difference, then impact investing is for you. Unless your cash is literally just under your mattress, it is having an impact. And so I hope that you feel inspired to get started today, maybe tomorrow, on this really exciting journey. Couldn't have said it better myself. I couldn't agree more. And Mathilde, you are also a big inspiration for for me in how you really aim to align your whole life. And so that that would be my takeaway is that, you know, again, impact investing is a mindset. It inspires action amongst portfolios, entrepreneurs, and innovation. I find this all very exciting, but it is something that we can all do and align our lives in a in a more consistent way with our values. Thanks for being a beacon of that. Thank you. Well, that was fun. That was fun. (laughs) That was great. Thank you. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone.